Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. As some of you may know, I recently announced my intention to retire as State Historian next July 1st. And with pending retirement now a real thing, I started wondering what retirement's actually going to be like. For an idea, I got in touch with one of my favorite people, Nick Bellantoni, who retired as Connecticut State Archaeologist in 2014 and has been living the retired, if not retiring, life of State Archaeologist Emeritus since then. What started out as a pretty self-serving podcast idea turned into what I think is one of our most interesting. Join me for Whatever Happened to Nick Bellantoni, coming up now on Grading the Nutmeg. Hi, this is State Historian Walt Woodward. We got someone with us today who's no stranger to Grading the Nutmeg, and he's one of my favorite people. Now, before I introduce him, let me tell you why I asked him back for yet another Grading the Nutmeg <laughs> show. You know, we've done um, close to 140, 150 podcasts, and I think he is the most frequent guest that has appeared on this show because he's just such a wonderful guy. State archaeologist emeritus Nick Bellantoni. Nick, it's great to see you. How are you doing? Great to see you, and thanks for having us back again, Walt. By the way, I say see you because we're recording this on Zoom, so we're actually looking at each other. Of course, he's happy to be many miles away, but it's (laughs) 9 It's nine o'clock in the morning and both of us are pretty bleary eyed, but there you go. Nick, the reason I ask you here is that after 27 years as a state archaeologist, you retired in 2014 and you became the state archaeologist emeritus. And it, it is my hope that when I retire, I too will become the state historian emeritus. And now that I've made that decision, you know, I've started to think, well, you know, what does that word emeritus mean? And, you know, I've kind of been thinking that it probably means works for free, but I'm not, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. What I really want to talk about is, is you've got a job that's very similar to mine and you've been in retirement now, whatever that is, seven years. And I want to hear about what it's like. You know, I was at your retirement party in September of 2014, and it was, I've never seen such an outpouring of love and affection for anyone as the people had for you that night. It was really pretty wonderful. And, you know, I thought then, wow, that, you know, what a, what a great way to go out of a job. Well, you know, after having done the world's best retirement party, you couldn't even stay retired. You're the only person I know who ever retired from the same job twice. And unfortunately, it happened because of a really sad event, didn't it? Yes, it did. Uh, uh, You say we retired in September of uh, 2014. Uh, The person to take my job, the new state archaeologist, Brian Jones, a graduate from the University of Connecticut, um, came on board and was doing such a fantastic job. He just had the expertise, the, the, the personality, uh, to work with people, uh, the expertise in the field, and um, you know, especially he brought uh, in-depth knowledge about the Paleo-Indian period, that very first period of 
uh, human settlement here and the, the very the 17th century, which, you know, that colonial Native American and even Dutch interaction that I know you all are, you know, very astute in, in, in terms of your studies. So he, he really brought a, a unique perspective to it. Unfortunately, um, after five years in, in uh, 2019, Brian passed away due to cancer and it just broke all of our hearts. And, you know, uh, we all miss him dearly. Um, but he brought a, a, you know, he brought such a, a want. So I came back, to, the, the state asked me if I would come back as an interim basis until a, a, a new state archeologist can now be hired. And you know, when, and, and, when you retired, and uh, I, I, I confess that I was one of the people who was in this camp. And I heard from a lot of people, and people will say this sometimes, but in your case, I know for a fact they meant it. And, and they said two things. They said, I really feel badly for the person who's going to take Nick's job because they're never going to live up, you know, they'll never be able to live up to the standards that he had. And, you know, the other thing is, is like, how do you ever, how do you ever replace Nick Valentoni? Well, it was amazing because Brian Jones stepped into the job, you know, with a lot of people wondering how he was going to do. And within a year, this young man had the personality, the energy, the, yes. you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a second Nick Valentoni. He was Brian Jones, but wow. Talk about a guy who won hearts and just, you know, made a seamless transition. It was Brian. And of course, you know, Brian is gone now, but he's remembered through one particular archaeological site that he discovered almost on pure intuition. And it turns out to be the oldest known human settlement in the state of Connecticut, right? That's exactly right. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Brian won our hearts and, and then broke our hearts when, when he left us. Because, you know, like you said, he had such energy. And, 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 and the important thing is, you know, he was his own person. He had this knowledge and intuition of an expertise in Paleo-Indian archaeology. Um, and, and he was involved in the, in the cultural resource management of a Connecticut DOT project in, farm, uh, in Avon. Um, a new bridge of Avon Old Farms Road spanning the, the Farmington River. And Brian, you know, they did the archaeology out there to, to mitigate for the, for the bridge reconstruction. And they found some, you know, Native American artifacts that went back 4,000, 5,000 years ago, kind of what we would have expected. But Brian had this intuition, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it, we must go deeper into the ground because there, he felt there was a good chance for what we call a Paleo-Indian, again, that first peopling uh, time period uh, in the state of Connecticut at a, it, at a it, deeper level. It takes some, it takes some chutzpah to tell <laughs> you know, an archaeological team, okay, we've taken it, we've gotten all the artifacts we can find, we are at the bottom of the level, it seems to be sterile. Let's keep going, right? I mean, that's, that's a gutsy call. It's not only a gutsy call for the archaeological team that's working on it, but how about the state and the State Department of Transportation who wants to get this project in? And, you know, but right. what he and, can, and they're also writing the check, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So with this additional work, however, 
he convinced them to let's mechanically strip about five feet of soil five. away, which five is quite deep. More? That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, and of course, far more than we could do with a shovel test bit. That's for sure. And they but they did that. And then they retested the area. And sure enough, there was the, the you know, stone tools were starting to emerge that, you know, that dated to that. 12,000 year period and with radiocarbon data of some of the organic remains and features that were found there, it is now radiocarbon dated at around 12,500 years ago and reflects the, the earliest radiocarbon dated archaeological site we have in the state of Connecticut. But, you know, that was Brian and, you know, I, you know, I, uh, you know, you, you talk about being irreplaceable. I'm thinking to myself, I don't know that I would have found that site. Because yeah. I don't know that I would have thought to, you know, that the characteristics of the landscape, what he was looking at and seeing, um, you know, may have had that deeper deposit. So it's funny that the, I think the, the big takeaway from that find for other archaeologists, if I understand this correctly, is that when you're looking for early, early settlements, you have to think about glacial river patterns sure. and look at the floodplains not from rivers today but from where the you know what they were like during the glacial period i've heard and read in the literature that's become a much more significant element of people's thinking that it might have been before this find you know that's part of brian's legacy and the fact that it's the brian jones site now right yes named in honor of him uh, for numerous reasons but certainly uh, the, the discovery is one of them you're absolutely right Walt. you know when we're dealing 12,000 you know 10,000 5,000 years ago we can't assume that what we see outside the door, even if it looks like a natural landscape, is what they saw back then. The rivers meandered, they changed, you know, flow patterns, uh, you know, the basic trap rock ridges were, were there. They had already been settled in, but, but you know, the, the land changes. Uh, and of course, we've changed it terrifically with our economic development into the 21st century. So um, yeah, you, you, you kind of in your, 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 your mind's eye as an archaeologist, reconstructing that paleo environment as much as you can really helps you zone in. But, uh, you know, again, Brian had that intuition uh, and that knowledge of the paleo period and really, uh, really zoned in on something magnificent. And, and you know, j just to kind of close out this wonderful discussion of Brian, who is a, just a beautiful human being. I, I went to your retirement party, best retirement party I have ever seen. I also went to the memorial service for Brian Jones in Glastonbury, and it was, I kind of get choked up even now talking about it. It was just amazing how many yeah. people yep. came with such love and admiration for this man. He had such an impact in a short time. He was only state archaeologist for five years, but I, I just couldn't, you know, just imagine what his tenure would have been like if he went on. And it, it, absolutely right. That memorial service was standing room only. The, the, every, people were backed out. It was a large hall and people were outside because they couldn't all kind of squeeze yeah. in. So just a great testament. And yeah, maybe uh, if Brian had been around longer, instead of saying, whatever happened to Nick Bellantoni, he'd say, who's Nick Bellantoni? That's exactly what I had hoped yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. Brian was an amazing special man for you. And you know what's yeah. amazing about this job? You came in and, you know, once again, 
you held the job while a search went on for yet a second replacement, another new state archaeologist, and Sarah Sportman was chosen, and she has come in, and she's now, I think, in her second, maybe third year. She, too, has picked up with her own unique set of skills and strengths, and she is really putting her own imprint on this job in powerful and wonderful ways. It's very impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, she's, you know, Sarah's doing a wonderful job. And, you know, poor Sarah, when she came on board, was exactly when COVID hit us nationally. And all the laboratories got shut down. She couldn't get into her office. It was really a trying time for her, but she got through that and, and continued to, you know, uh, doing what the state archaeologist is supposed to be doing. Now things are opening up and she's done a magnificent job under very, very trying circumstances. It's but, been really you know, interesting. I'm starting to hear her name in conversations the way I used to hear Nick, you know, and Brian. It's and wonderful Brian. to see. It's a testament, I think, to um, the wonderful and, and, and knowledgeable people in the archaeological community that these, what I consider younger people coming up, uh, they have new expertises and uh, the personalities. It's just a testament to, uh, you know, the grad students that we've had at UConn and, and uh, um, the commitment the commitment both her and Brian have brought to the position uh, and uh, the ability to work with people is just, just great to see. But, you know, that kind of talent is out there and that's why it was easy to retire. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, this is, this is the podcast where you are going to teach me what retirement is like. So let, let's, let, you know, let's get back to that discussion. So I assume that, you know, because Brian was so busy and Sarah's been so busy, that's given you just a lot of time to put out the lounge chair, sit on the deck, <laughs> go to the beach and swim. So it's, you know, what's retirement like, Nick? Well, my tan is the same it's always been, and my, uh, I'm not playing as much golf as I thought I would. But uh, there is a difference, uh, clearly. I mean, uh, you know, I remember, you know, when I was working, it was like seven o'clock in the morning. I was running out of the house, jumping in the car, cup of coffee in my hand. Now, hey, listen, seven o'clock in the morning, I'm having coffee and I'm I'm reading the newspaper or or, or catching up with people. So, it, I can make my schedule a little bit more into my own framework than where I had to be as the state archaeologist. So that that is clearly different. So, so the you workload get to sleep, is you get to sleep in. I get to sleep in, but I'm an early, early riser. So that's yeah. not much of a. I, I get up with the sun as soon as the sun sparks. I'm up, which means go. I get to sleep a little later in the wintertime than I do in the summertime. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, it's it's it's. But it's a more relaxing morning. You know, I can get out and do my race yeah. walk or whatever I need to do, and then start my day. So it's that morning is the morning is where I I I feel it the most because once we get into it, you know, uh, you know, yesterday I was out excavating a site in Danbury at the St. Platten Church site with uh, some of the friends of the Office of State Archaeology. Uh, so you know we're still active, we're still giving a lot of presentations. The demands are still there, which is which is great. Uh, but you know now I can call my schedule usually a little bit more, and, and the morning is when I really feel the difference. You know, one of the things, and and this has been a benefit to all of us that has come about as a result of your retirement is you have written and published since you retired two books, right? 
One of them, The Long Journey's Home, The Repatriations of Henry Opukahaia and Albert Afraidahawk. There are two episodes, actually episode 54 of Grading the Nutmeg is a two-part episode where we talk about that wonderful book just to, to kind of entice people who may not have listened to it to go listen. Give us a summary of the two people that you talk about in that book. Tell us about their lives. When, when I did retire, just as you mentioned, I, I thought, you know, one of the things I would want to do and have the time to do would be to, um, you know, write some of my uh, experiences as a state archaeologist. And, and I knew the first book I wanted to do would be the repatriations of Henry Opakahaia and Albert Afraidahawk, because these were very personal projects for me. And what they involve are two Native men, a Native Hawaiian and a Native American, who died in the state of Connecticut in the 19th century. Um, and in the 20th centuries, the late 20th centuries and into the 21st centuries, their families, descendants, uh, had asked for the repatriation of their remains from the, the cold ground of Connecticut back home to their, their native homelands. And Henry Opakaia, uh, you know, left the Hawaiian Islands at the beginning of the 19th century. He uh, eventually would study the, for the Christianity and, and adopt the Christianity. And his goal was that he would be uh, a missionary to go back and um, convert his fellow countrymen to the Christian gospel. And while studying at, uh, in Cornwall, Connecticut at the foreign mission school, he, he was very, getting very close to going back to Hawaii when unfortunately he um, got typhus fever and ended up um, um, dying in uh, February of 1818. He's he was buried in Cornwall Cemetery and he lived, he lived there, he, he resided there uh, for the next 175 years. And then uh, one of his clan descendants, uh, uh, Henry never married, uh, or had his own uh, children. So uh, one of his clan descendants, um, a woman by the name of Deborah Lee, has an inspiration in the middle of the night uh, that uh, she hears a voice that says he wants to come home. And she knew that he was Henry Opakaia and that he wanted to return back to Hawaii, as was his wish on his deathbed. He said, oh, how I want to see Hawaii. And so she's, she and her family started the repatriation process. And as a state archeologist, I had the responsibilities of exhuming him, doing the forensic work to be sure we had Henry Opakaya and return him home. And um, it's such a personal experience. And I'm, I'm you know, even to this day, I, uh, Debbie and I um, are on the phone, uh, you know, at least three or four times a year and making plans for her to come here or for me to go to Hawaii. But, we, we're still very much, we feel like family. And the other individual there is Albert Afraidahawk. You know, one thing about when, when we were doing the podcast on this, I, thanks to you, and you've, you've taken me a lot of places in, as the tag along to the state archaeologist, and we went out to Cornwall. Yes. And we went to the original tomb site of Henry Opukahaia, which is now a cenotaph because he has been repatriated to Hawaii. But it was kind of wonderful because on this 19th century, very New England table stone uh, tomb was a conch shell and some beads right. and some things, you know, offerings from clearly from people who had some kind of connection to his homeland and to him was kind of moving to see these two cultural forms intermingled in this, you know, this 
town of Cornwall, Connecticut, out in the out in the western country part of the state. Yeah, and you know, even when I, you know, first uh, th this project occurred in 1993, and when I went out there to prepare for the exhumation, um, I I met with the, the sexton, and he, he showed me this wonderful stone table, uh, uh, and just like you say, there was there was money, there was food, there were beads, there you know, shells, and um, and I said to him, "What gives? What's what is this?" And, he said, you know, he said, Hawaiians, when they come to the Northeast, will many times make a pilgrimage out to the Litchfield Hills in Cornwall and actually, you know, come and pay homage to, to Henry Opakaya. So I was really blown away with that because, you know, I, I never expected a shrine. And that's what it was. It was a shrine to his memory that uh, even though we have kind of forgotten him in Connecticut history, uh, you know, they have not in Hawaii. And that was really impressive to see. It had the same impact on me. It was, you know, a, what a remarkable man. And so was your second repatriation. Yeah, that was uh, Albert Afraida Hawk, who's Ogala Lakota Sioux. His family uh, took part in some of the most amazing events in the American West. Uh, his grandfather, Slow, Slow Bull, uh, rode with the Red Cloud during the Red Cloud's wars and was a signer of the Fort Laramie Treaty in uh, 1868. His father uh, and his mother, his family, this was before uh, Albert was born, uh, they were at Little Bighorn. They were, uh, you know, in the, what they called the, the greasy grass where, um, you know, um, George Armstrong Custard came in and attacked and found his demise and his father, rode with the crazy horse uh, against Custard in that battle. So, uh, and his brother, his older brother, uh, Richard Afraida Hawk, was one of the few survivors of the massacre at Wounded Knee uh, later on in 1890. So the family history is extraordinary. Uh, it, it's American history. And um, uh, Albert, when he turned about 20 years old, uh, went out and performed with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. And while he was touring the, 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 the Eastern seaboard, they, in June of 1900, they came to Connecticut. Somewhere there, I th think in Hartford, he uh, contracted food poisoning because a number of the uh, troopers uh, uh, with, with the show came down with the same disease. But by the, uh, the ailment, I should say, but by the time he got to, the, the show got to Danbury, Connecticut, Albert died of botulism, basically, with no antibiotics. There was really no way to save him. He was buried in an unmarked grave, and a local historian, 112 years later, uh, by the name of Bob Young in, in, in Danbury, found a burial card, located the, the plot at Worcester Cemetery, where he was. Albert was buried in an unmarked grave. Um, did some research, found that there were afraid of hawks still living uh, in the Western reservations, contacted the family, and the family then would ask for his repatriation back, especially after his great grandniece, Marlis Afraid of Hawk, had a dream one night where he came to her in the dream and asked her to follow him. Uh, and that was interpreted as meaning to bring him home. So again, uh, I had, had the similar role of, of um, um, you know, the exhumation and hopefully a professional and respectful way, uh, doing the, the 
the forensic work to be sure this was in fact Albert and uh, and to send him home. And um, again, uh, you know, we're uh, Marlis and I are we we interface all the time on Facebook and stuff like that. So the in fact they adopted me into the family, which was quite quite a beautiful ceremony and a. Um, 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 they gave me a, a Lakota name. My Lakota name is Tepuwan Washte Okale. My wife thinks it means man who can't hear well, but uh, <laughs> it, it really means he who finds good. And how sweet a sentiment is that? How what a what a tribute that is. That's really remarkable. Um, so that was your first retirement book, and then. A second one came along. Now, you know, we can't go through all, what is it, no. four or five of the cases yep. that you talk about in So the Tomb Remain, but I would invite people to uh, listen to episode 112 because it's another two-part episode, and, and we do talk about this remarkable thing. But give people a summary of, you know, a book titled And So the Tomb Remains sounds like an Alfred Hitchcock mystery, but it's not, is it? No, well, actually, you know, the original title I had was Houses of the Night uh, to talk about the tombs. And, uh, and that was from a, a poem by Philip Fernon, who was, a, you know, part of that romantic movement uh, during the American Revolution. He talks about tombs of American patriots. So I thought, geez, what a great title that would be. However, I went with a publisher in, uh, um, uh, in England, uh, uh, Oxford. Oxbow Books are part of um, a subsidiary of uh, Oxford University Press. And uh, they nixed that title because Houses of the Night in Europe means basically bordellos. And uh, <laughs> they thought people would be very disappointed if they thought they were going to read it. <laughs> if they thought they were buying erotica and got archaeology. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been very. So, uh, and so the tomb remain actually comes from a, another poem written by Thomas Hardy. Uh, he laments over his wife's family tomb that is totally uh, uh, falling apart, but also the people inside have been totally forgotten. Who are they? Uh, you know, they're long forgotten. And, and even though the tomb remain, um, the people have been forgotten. And that became very appropriate because in a, um, in two of these cases, um, we had one was a, a cemetery, the Pickin family cemetery in uh, Center Cemetery in East Hartford, where there was no name on the facade of this brick building and it built into the side of the hill. And everybody thought that was a, a holding vault where they kept bodies during the wintertime when it was much too cold, to, you know, snow and frozen earth. To, I put a shovel in the ground to bury somebody. They'd hold their bodies in, in, the, in the vault until the spring and bring them out and bury them. Uh, more appropriately. Um, but when uh, there was a collapse, it, they went inside and saw like this mass of, uh, of wooden and metal coffins. Uh, and that's when we got called in and were able to identify the, um, the, the Pickett family tomb and doing the forensic work as well as the archeological mapping and working with archivists and, and genealogists, we were able actually to come up with uh, 16 names of, of, of the Pickin family, uh, people who died from 1770 to about 1830s or oh, even later um, in the tomb. So, um, 
you know, and for people who don't know, the Pitkin family was one oh. of the you know leading Connecticut families in the days of the standing aristocracy. I mean, they, they, they. There was a governor Pitkin, William yeah, Pitkin, and you know, the, this you, you couldn't be more elite than the Pitkin family. And I think it is a, you know, it's a testament to the fleeting nature of fame that. You know, that's right. Time Completely moves forgotten. on. People think it's a holding tank for maybe the lawnmowers, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's no, 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 no. Absolutely. I always like to say that the Pickens were the 18th century Kennedys. They were, you know, involved with everything, and, you know, uh, what the Kennedys would be in the 20th century, I suppose. But um, yeah, they were very, very prominent. And another one was the, the, uh, the, uh, the Buckley, Gershom Buckley's tomb, who was the grandson of one of the most prominent. 17th century uh, personalities. And that was in Colchester, right? And this was in Colchester, Connecticut. That's right. And this was a, a tomb that had been vandalized in the 1920s by students who stole a skull during Halloween. And um, the, 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 the town fathers made them completely bury the tomb and fill up the, the stairwell so that the public knowledge of the tomb even being in the ancient burial ground was lost after three generations. And it was until um, a, a restoration project, they're cleaning up the cemetery that they found a, a stone marble slab that said the tomb of Gershom Buckley and his descendants. And that's when they realized there was a tomb there. They so, called us So in. they had just thought it was a hill, like a, a, a natural yeah. feature in the cemetery? That's and exactly then- right. Wow. It was on a slope. It was on the western slope of the cemetery, and they thought it was just a, a you know, just this little knoll on the Isn't slope. That and underneath that knoll was, in fact, a, a tomb that housed thirty individuals. And again, we we went through the process, and based on family uh, uh, Buckley genealogy, which is very extensive and uh, well defined, we were able to match up, uh, except for one individual, we were able to uh, identify them. And so, and so, another, so it sounds like in addition to writing in retirement, you've been participating in the Genealogist Full Employment Act. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, our archaeology is, is uh, multidisciplinary. We, we get into everything in the genealogy, archive, history, the close relationship we have with history and so forth. So, yeah, it's uh, uh, you continue the research. Let's put it that way. But uh, so, so I, I, do you have a third book in the works? Are you, you know, you want to yeah, sh- talk about it? Or are you, are you one of those people who keeps it in the vault till, you know, till it's soup, till it's time? No, no, we, we, we signed a couple of new contracts. One is a book uh, on trails. It's going to be uh, uh, Ruins Seldom Seen, uh, Falcon Guides uh, Press. They, they came to us with an idea of, of doing a, a hiking book for people to, when they're on the trails, if they, there are ruins of various kinds, help them identify the ruins and, and talk a little bit about the history behind it. Will so this I'm, be in I'm, Connecticut or in New England or it's actually all over going the to, country? No, this is gonna be Southern New England. So it's gonna take in trails that, that people can take uh, in Connecticut, Rhode Island and Massachusetts and see you know, stone ruins of various kinds, old, old mills, old, old farmsteads, um, you know, uh, uh, cemeteries in some cases and so forth. What a great um, idea. Yeah, it should be fun. Uh, it'll get me out in the field and doing uh, uh, 
bunch of hiking and uh, you know working it out. So so each chapter will be a detail uh, for for the the hiker um, what they'll see, how, where they'll see it, and hopefully I, I don't get anybody lost out there. But we'll and, see how and, that works. And out. you have an idea of when we'll be able to go to our bookstores and pick this one up? Because uh, it'll be twenty twenty three. Uh, probably Excellent. by the summer of 2023, if everything goes well. And then we're also uh, in the process of putting a, a book together on ground penetrating radar cases in the state of Connecticut. We've selected about 10 cases where we've done radar. We're calling this archaeology without digging and, and looking at uh, some sites we've been able to find based on radar images alone. That's exciting. Now, are you doing LIDAR and ground penetrating radar or just the ground penetrating radar? Just ground penetrating radar at this point, and we'll see where, where the next one brings us. So we, we you know, you keep coming up with ideas that uh, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens down the road, but I've enjoyed it. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of work and sure, I'm sure I'm not the greatest writer in the world by any means. I don't consider myself a writer, but I am a storyteller and it's you know, Nick, I have read both of your books that you have written since you retired, and they are page turners. And I don't mean page turners in a superficial sense. You are learning every step of the way, but you write them in ways that it keeps you wanting to go on and learn more. So, yeah, yeah. Well, they're great stories. There really are. The great, there's great stories behind each one of them, and you just try to bring that out. So uh, you you have convinced me that when I retire, I'll have time to write or more time to write, which is great. But you've also, you've been involved in some pretty interesting archaeological discoveries as well. Uh, you know, the one that I know about because I was with you uh, shortly after it happened was one in Ridgefield. Yeah, basically we had a, a, a case in Ridgefield. This was during the interim when I came back after uh, Brian's passing. And uh, yeah, they were doing house construction actually in the basement of a, a, a house, a, the original portion of the house dated to as early as 1790s, uh, but um, in various expansions of the house in the 19th and 20th centuries, there was a dirt cellar. And so they had, the current property owner decided they were going to cement and, and, and close the cellar for a playroom for their, for their children. Um, and in grading the, the dirt cellar, they came upon a skeleton. And uh, of course, at that point, it was considered a, a criminal investigation. The police were called in and the medical examiner's office got involved. They sent their forensic anthropologists down. When they saw that the remains were not part of a modern criminal investigation because the, the skeletal remains themselves were, you know, decomposing, there was, you know, cortical loss and uh, uh, decomposition enough where it was considered the remains were 50 years old or more, probably over 100 years as they had estimated at that time. Then as a state archaeologist, we get called in to conduct an investigation. Um, and that's when we uncovered um, four adult men um, in um, three of which in a mass grave, that is to say they were buried in the same grave and they were overlapping each other. They were commingled arms and legs and so forth. So they weren't in separate coffins or boxes. This was not a, a family burying ground as one of our initial hypotheses, uh, but these, these were all adult men um, buried in a mass grave. And of course, knowing the history of the area, we were at the, the, on the battlefield of 
what's called the Battle of Ridgefield, which occurred on April 27th, 1777, uh, in which um, General uh, Tryon came in from New York, um, docked, uh, attacked the arsenal. The Patriots had an arsenal up in Danbury, blew that to smithereens, and then proceeded southward to get back to his ships uh, anchored off of Westport in the Saugatuck River. And um, the Patriots uh, responded, the militia. It, it, kind of like they did at Lexington and Concord, right? Exactly, people, yeah. It's a, people that's came a great running analogy. from everywhere and the march home wasn't nearly as uh, uneventful as the march there, right? It, that's a, They had exactly. to fight their way back. They had to fight their way back. And one of the uh, battles was at Ridgefield where uh, the militia, the American militia set up a barricade and the, the, finding, the uh, leading that barricade were two generals, Solomon and guy by the name of Benedict Arnold, who was on our side at that early in the war. And um, the, they put up a barricade. Um, you know, the, the battle probably at the barricade only took about 15, 20 minutes or more, very, very short time where the Brits came over it and uh, the Patriots retreated to the South. Uh, the Brits followed them to get back, and there was a series of skirmishes all the way back to their 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 ships. But um, there was legend that um, there was a, a common mass burial out there of British and American patriots uh, that had died on. They were buried right on the battlefield, and it turns out that uh, uh, it had never been found, and you know nobody knew if there really was this mass grave, but. When we got called in on this new burial in 2019, um, we're working on the hypothesis, it's still a hypothesis because we haven't finished the work yet, that these are in fact uh, victims of that, um, um, of that battle, which if, if that's the case, it makes it extraordinarily significant and unique because no other battlefield revolutionary war remains have ever been. We don't go looking for burials, you know, we don't, but because of the nature of the, the construction and the discovery, they have to be removed and they will be reburied with full military honors. But we've got a lot of work still to do. COVID closed down all the, uh, the forensic laboratories and the, the university laboratories. So we're really only getting back up on our feet in terms of the actual forensic and, work. And what kind of investigations will they be doing on these skeletal remains? Well, a, a number of things. First of all, you know, the gross morphology of the bones helping us with age, sex, um, and they all appear to be adult men uh, between tw 20 and 40 years of age, uh, but also disease states, uh, traumas that we're looking for in terms, you know, we never found a musket ball in the excavation units, but we're gonna be looking at trauma, things like that, but also DNA. Now the DNA is gonna be important in the sense that, um, you know, theoretically they're all British descendants, no matter whose side they were fighting right. on. Right. So the ancestry we, we would expect is gonna go back to Western Europe, but we're gonna we're going check in, you know, do the DNA for that. And, you know, if we got lucky enough on one or two of the burials, um, it is possible to, if there were enough markers, uh, uh, to compare with uh, family tree DNAs to, to see if we can get a match. But that's a long shot. But you know, we'll we'll see how that proceeds. And also, I think one of the most 
the remarkable things we're going to be doing is what's something called stable carbon isotope analysis. So what that is, is uh, um, the food you eat through growth and development, okay, um, get laid down actually in your teeth. The, 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 the nutrient, you eat plants from a given area, you know, you're a colonial farmer and you're growing your subsistence crops right in your backyard. Those, that corn and, and tomatoes and, 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 and squash and so forth, that the roots of that get into the, uh, into the, the, the vegetable, you know, you, you're the nutrients and the minerals in the, in the soil. And that gets taken up in, in isotope analysis that when your teeth are laid down, um, we can actually we can actually read some of that. We could get that, so we could distinguish in many cases diets um, from Europe as opposed from diets from America. So and that happens. might allow us to to distinguish if they're British or uh, uh, or American without, or at least born in Britain and raised in Britain. Does this can, happen while you're young or is this something that happens throughout your you, life? There's two, there's two forms, growth and development um, uh, that we, we normally get, we can get from the, the teeth especially, but also from the bone itself, which tells us about the latter part of life. So you've really got some really, that, that is that can be really helpful in distinguishing because uh, in terms of material culture, uh, these individuals were, Two of the four were completely stripped of all clothing. There were no boots, buckles, or buttons. Two of them, however, had buttons. One appears to be from a waistcoat with buttons coming down the center of the chest. But when we had those buttons analyzed, cleaned up, there were no regimental markers. They were very plain buttons. They were tomback buttons with a cloth covering to them, which was very common. And, you know, you could purchase... Uh, uh, pretty readily. Uh, so it could be that these were not British, but American, like you say, coming off the farms, uh, you know, wearing what they had and, uh, and, uh, and dying. We also found a finial to a, uh, to a powder horn. So that was pretty interesting too, which gives us some context on the burials. But yeah, one of the questions, are the British, are the American? And, and in fact, getting back to that whole hypothesis of whether we do in fact have revolutionary war victims or it's something else that we have here. If you were guessing at this point, how much specificity do you think you'll be able to, you'll have about these bodies at the end of the analysis? Well, yeah, the, 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 the analysis, you know, is, is, it's, you know, how do you want to say, it's precarious in the sense that we're dealing with archeological, this archeological bone, this is not see it, you know, CSI on television where DNA and everything works every year, every week, you know. In this case, you're dealing with bone that's already deteriorated um, and, and lost some of its organic content. So, uh, you know, um, sometimes it doesn't work. So, you know, but, but the labs are getting so sophisticated. The technology, even what we were able to do five years ago has changed dramatically. So I think you know, once the samples are out there and, and are being tested, I think they're going to be pretty successful. And, you know, that would help us. You know, if you ask me right now, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I believe these are probably American militia because of the, the, the nature of the buttons, um, the, the nature of the, of the, of the, the quick burials. Um, but, um, you know, that all remains to be seen. We don't want to jump the gun on any of that. But and, uh, and it, from a just hypothetically, 
How would you account for the fact that two of the bodies were buried with clothes and two of them were stripped of all? Yeah, well, we know the British had a, had a, 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 a tradition, especially when they were uh, fighting battles away from their country, that they would um, strip uh, the, the uniforms completely off. I mean, those are valuable. Everything from right. the armaments, you know, the the clothing, the, the and so forth, the boots—they didn't leave anything behind. Yeah, if they had people, the time; they would strip them completely. People today really don't understand how much time went into every piece of clothing a person wore in the 1700s. There were no sewing machines. There were no, you know, everything was hand done. Everything was hand cut, and it was extremely time-consuming and expensive. That's why people might have wear the same coats or the same clothes so often that if somebody was looking for them, they'd describe what they were wearing because they yeah. knew they'd still be wearing it. That's exactly right. And for the Industrial Revolution and textile mills, it was very expensive. And, and this is why in burials, we, we rarely ever see clothing on on you know 18th and early 19th century burials. It's not really until you get into the mid to late uh, 19th century that very wealthy people will now start burying their dead with clothing. But back then, you know, at the best they had a sheet or a shroud with, uh, you know, pins holding it all together. So uh, yeah, you're right, this was very common. Um, you know, it could be haste, you know, where they, they obviously stripped these guys to a certain extent because there's no boots, there's yeah. no buckles, there's no pants. But what we have evidence is of a shirt, a jacket, a waistcoat on two individuals. So, you know, there uh, some time was taken and the powder horn we believe was just pulled off this individual because the only thing left is the finial or the attachment to the powder horn to the strap that dislodged. So um, no, the, yeah, the, we, would, we would expect actually that the burials would be stripped because of the fact that this is like you mentioned, so expensive. And, um, you needed to take it on. You know, I, I, I had the, uh, I, I don't even know what the word is. It wasn't pleasure. It wasn't honor, but it was, uh, was really a wonderful experience to be with you in this cellar while you were discovering and uncovering these, uh, these bones of, you know, what appear to be, at least at this point, quite possibly Revolutionary War soldiers. And uh, uh, this was right at the time where you were, you know, you were getting ready to retire now, again, as state archaeologist for the second time. And I had this experience. This was a, this was a, you know, this was in December or early January. It was cold and it was cold in that cellar. Uh, but it reminded me, and you may not even remember this, it was the first time that I met you was in 2004. It was in early fall, maybe middle of September. And you called me and you introduced yourself and I said, welcome to the state historian. And he said, I'm going down, I'm going down, you know, near Stonington. They found some burials down there. Why don't you come with me? And this was my introduction to Nick Bellantoni entered the archaeology of the state of Connecticut, and it was an experience I'll never forget. Do you remember it? Oh, absolutely. And uh, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it turned out to be a, a, a Pequot burial ground that had been encountered by a house construction. So it was. It was a terribly important site, and we worked with the tribe, but 
uh, in that area. And I knew, you know, when I had heard, when I first went down there with the police and went with the initial discovery, and I knew it was 17th century, I said, I've got to call Walt Woodward and bring him down. So hey, Walt, here's the bookends on this. So that was the first time it was a burial, the, the 17th century burial that we started. And my last project as state archeologist was Ridgefield. So you were in on the both that, the, 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 the bookends of, of, the, of our experiences. Well, what I, what I, you know, this was such a wonderful introduction for me because I had worked on this 17th century history and I was working on a book that involved the Pequots and the Mohegans and people in this region. And there I'm, you know, it, all of this history that I had researched and studied became vividly alive in that moment there over on one side of this, this, uh, this fairly large, even then, burial site, there were a group of Pequots working on another side, there were a group of Mohegans working. Everyone's respectful and quiet and studious. And I, I, you know, I met Faith Damon Davison that day, who became someone I just you know, admire as much as I admire you. She's gone uh, now, but she's beautiful. Yeah, yeah she's what, a what a great, woman. what a great lady she was. Well, and, you know, go ahead. No, well, no. I was just going to say that's kind of the, the. I think in many respects, the nice marriage between our two disciplines is that you know what we're going to learn about the past is going to come from documents and maps and diaries and things that historians. Are, and then the other part of that equation is material culture, the actual artifacts, the you know, the, 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 the things people used and, and even sometimes stains in the ground that lead us to new interpretations. So together, archeology span and, and history, uh, you know, it, it completes the universe of our understanding of the past. The, the way this day ended, and it, also, it, it was another one of those things, that was an incredibly important day for me. Because at the end of this thing, although people had been working very quietly and there, there wasn't a lot of conversation with each other, at the end of the day, both of the native groups came together and everyone there stopped and did a, a I think it's a sweetgrass ceremony yep. over the bones that they had found that day. And, and it was, you know, it really, I had read about NAGPRA, the Native American Grave Repatriation Act, and, you know, of the legal importance of making sure that burial uh, artifacts and burial uh, material culture is returned to the tribes to which the, the, the tribes that own them. But I'd never seen in person what that meant emotionally. And it, you know, yeah. it was it was a wonderful thing. And I, you know, I, as I was driving home that day, I was like, I'm going to like this guy. And wow, what, <laughs> you know, what well, a, what a day it was. You know, and I think what you're emphasizing is something that that you know we've learned a long time ago, and that is that we may be dealing with the with the uh, 17th century, but it's about today. It's, it's really about people today, contemporary people, and how our interpretations sometimes are, uh, affect them, but also working together. You know, history is, in archaeology, while well, people think of it as being something in the long past, really is so contemporary. It's about us. And, and that's what brings that alive. It is. So, I you know, obviously, you... Uh... You haven't been sleeping in too much. 
no. this retirement <laughs> thing. What what kind of other things have you been doing? I you know I I your name yeah. still filters in. And the person who says whatever happened to Nick Bellantoni, they're out there, but you know, they're, they're not archaeologists, I'll tell you that. Well, we've been doing some consulting. I get called in sometimes on, on you know, when bones are found or something like that. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, uh, we, we're still doing a number of presentations around the state. So you'll still be getting in your retirement a number of invitations to come back and, and speak to various groups about your work. And uh, so that continues. Uh, um, so yeah, no, but listen, you know, when, when you retire, I'll give you some pointers on how to swing a golf club and then we'll, you know, we'll go out together. You know, I, I, took, I took golf in college and that's the only time I ever really played it because I could not hit a ball straight. I, I can hit it to Welcome the left. To the I can Welcome hit to it the to club. the right, but I cannot get it to go straight down that long green thing. I forget. Yeah, yeah. the trick to that is aim to the left, and then it'll I, go down the left. <laughs> you know, I thought if I stand sideways, I can maybe make this happen. Anyway, Nick, this is this has been fabulous. It, do you have any plans to retire from retirement? No, I, I can't. Yeah, no, I'm just going to keep on doing it as long as I can keep on doing it, and. Uh, uh, but it's been a great, uh, it, 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 it's a new kind of life. It's a, you, you, get, you get adjusted to the pace, but um, you'll be amazed Walt, how busy you will still be because there will still be projects that will require your attention uh, and you'll want to get involved. And uh, it'll just be a different pace, uh, but you know, I, I know you'll enjoy it. And then you'll come back to me and say, man, how did we have time to work? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I often say a version of that now. It's like, how the heck am I going to get it all done? Maybe <laughs> <That's right. laughs> how, how did we have time to work? Maybe great. Nick Bellantoni, you, you, uh, you remain one of my favorite people and one of the best, one of, one of the best things about being the state historian of Connecticut has been working with you. So you know maybe maybe in retirement we'll get to get together and uh we'll 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 do a retrospective on retirement looking back the other way looking back the other way but it's a mutual admiration society uh walt because uh, i can't tell you the pleasure it has been to work with you and how much you've taught me uh over the years so ah. uh you know really it's uh i admire you very much and you're one of my favorites that's for sure well, we should start a club. Yeah, we could be a mutual <laughs> admiration society. We could just, you know, we could have lunch and figure out how many ways we like each other. <laughs> and I'm sure everyone listening has now had more than enough of both of us. So, so let's say goodbye. Goodbye, Walt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more about Nick Bellantoni's archaeological discoveries, listen to episodes 54, 112, and 114 of Grading the Nutmeg. And for more great Connecticut history stories, read and subscribe to Connecticut Explored at cthistory.org and visit todayinctshistory.com. I'm Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time on Grading the Nutmeg.